You can turn with me in your Bibles once again to Exodus chapter 20. Of course, we read the whole law of God a moment ago, but let us um, focus our attention this morning on verse 17, which is the 10th commandment. Exodus 20 and verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. We have increasingly become a culture in our day that is ignorant of the law of God. We know lots of things. We know a lot about things that go on in our lives and in the world and in the news. We know a lot about sports in our day. We know a lot about movies and actors. We know a lot about musicians. We know a lot about political things that are going on in the world. We have knowledge about a great many things. There are a lot of intelligent people in this world. So, I mean, it's incredible. The, the people who go to um, get degrees in a higher education and have just so much knowledge and teach in universities. Uh, go to college, read, and go to universities, read lots of books. People know a lot more than I do and study and learn lots of things. And they have very successful careers. They know so much. There's so much information today, so much learning going on, so much knowledge. And yet, and yet, in spite of all that, we don't know and we are ignorant of the moral standard of the righteousness of God. The ten simple rules of righteousness that God has given us. People don't know the Ten Commandments. And even if they can recite them, they usually have very little depth of understanding of the meaning of the commandments and of the breadth of the application of them. Just yesterday, when I was at the Dayton Days Festival and sharing the Ten Commandments with others, it was all about that, right? Uh, you know, a lot of people loved our idea, you know, tell us a commandment and get free candy. And it was an opportunity uh, to, to tell people, um, now... Do you think you can keep the law of God? Do you think you can be saved by it? Thankfully, there were people that, that said no and thought about it. No, you have to have faith in Christ. The law points us to Christ. Uh, and so there were those uh, who did know one or two of the commandments. But many people had to work hard to just come up with, with one of the Ten Commandments. They said and just thought there for a while, I know, I, I know some of these. And I had to try to help them. What's something that you can do that's wrong? You know? What if you don't tell the truth? What's that called? Oh, man. Oh, why? You know, it starts with an L. Ooh, you know. But one person said, oh, I, I, you know, when I asked them, you know, can you tell us any of the commandments? Oh, I, I, can't, I can't do that. I, I couldn't tell you any of the commandments as they were walking away. And then another person who was standing by said, oh, that's really sad, right? And it is. 
We don't know the law. Um, but it really isn't it's surprising that in an increasingly anti-Christian culture, in an increasingly apostate culture, this has been lost on us. They certainly aren't getting the law from the school system. They aren't getting it at home. Sadly, they're, many times they're not getting it in the church either. And they aren't getting it in the law courts very well either. I can still remember many years ago, in the year 2002, when Chief Justice Roy Moore was ordered to remove the Ten Commandments uh, monument from his courthouse. And I remember going, actually at the time, down to Alabama, and there was this great uprising among the people, and all this teaching going on, and um, protesting, rightfully so, that we had to remove a Ten Commandment monument from a courthouse. That was 20, roughly 20 years ago. No wonder ethics and morality have gone drastically downhill in our nation. But the moral law of God and the Ten Commandments are a really, really big deal. And they should be of the utmost importance to the Christian. We should know them like the back of our hand. You know, people would come up and they would say a commandment. I would say, well, that's the sixth commandment or that's the fifth commandment. That's the third. And they're like, wow, you know, they're, you know they might have been surprised that I could just... We, we should all be able to do that. That's not, that's not something that should be just the pastor should know. We should all know the commandments like the back of our hand. If you haven't memorized them yet, if you haven't memorized them, children, you must do so. And in the older kids' class, we're, we're beginning to go through the Ten Commandments right now and we will be... Uh, memorizing them. But there is a reason why our Christian forefathers and the Reformers and the Puritans spent so much time expounding upon and elaborating on the Ten Commandments in works like the Larger and Shorter Catechisms or the Heidelberg Catechism. There's a great amount of time spent on the Ten Commandments, as well it should be. We remember how these commandments were treated by the Lord. God engraved them on stone twice. Any other part of God's word did he do that for? Twice engraved on stone with his own finger. God himself personally and publicly declared them to the whole nation of Israel, millions of people, with an audible voice, with such thunder that the people asked never to hear his voice again. No other portion of God's Word has received such honored treatment. The moral law is very dear to God. It is the revelation of His own heart. Therefore, we should say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I love your law. Is that your attitude, congregation? How I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And I hammered this point because I will be honest with you, I was a Christian for a long time, brought up in the church and did not know the Ten Commandments very well, did not know the importance of it, and heard people in the church that kind of derided it and said, well, now with the age of the Spirit and the coming of Christ, it's just about love. And of course, they don't realize love is the fulfilling of the law, but, you know, they decried it. They spoke negatively of it. They didn't emphasize it. That is a great travesty in the church. 
But that is why we have, on a semi-regular basis at least, been continuing to preach through the Ten Commandments at those times when we are anticipating celebrating the Lord's Supper together for the purpose of instruction and self-examination. And we come to the Tenth Commandment today and conclude our series, but it probably won't be a really long time before I will want to preach through the Ten Commandments again, because they are that important. Well, we've worked our way through the first nine, and we come to the last one today. The Tenth Commandment, which says, you shall not covet. This commandment is strategically placed at the end, and in some ways is unique among the others because this one focuses primarily on the motives and the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now, what is covetousness exactly? What, what does it mean to covet? If we were to define, define covetousness from our text, what, we would, what would we say? How would we define it? Well, the Hebrew word that is used in Exodus 20, verse 17 for covet is hamad. Hamad. It can be translated as to covet or to desire or to lust after or to consider precious, or to take pleasure in, or to take delight in. Surprisingly, you would think a word as common as this would be used many times over and over again in Scripture, but surprisingly, uh, the word is only used 28 times in the Old Testament. And the word is not always used in a negative sense. You have to look at the context in which the word is used to determine that. For example, the word is used positively for the very first time in Scripture in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, in reference to all the trees that the Lord God had made. Genesis 2, verse 9 says, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. That word pleasant is the same root from where we get our word covet in the 10th commandment. It was, ple it was pleasant to the sight. It was something, the trees were something desirable. And that was a good thing. God made them that way. In this case, all the trees that God had made were pleasant and, and were desirable to eat from. And as Adam and Eve had access to all of the trees, with, with the obvious exception of the one, it was not being covetous to want to eat from them. The same word is also used in Psalm 68, verse 16, of God himself. In reference to Mount Zion, it says this, This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. This is the mountain that God desires. He himself has this desire. This is a, a I mean the word covets applied to God in a positive sense? Yes. It reveals to us something in this passage of in Psalm 68 of God's own desires. It reveals to us the heart of God, that He desires to dwell in Zion, in the midst of His people, in the midst of His church. It brings pleasure to God to manifest His gracious and, and uh, loving presence there. 
And what an incredible thing, just to pause for a moment, but to consider that the God who created the universe, who created us, that He delights to be with us. He loves the gates of Zion. It says in Psalm 87, verse 2, God is pleased to be with us, to be in our very presence at this very moment, in this building right now. God loves to be here. He delights to be with His people. And He's here in a unique way in our midst. This is the same word translated as covet. And this is helpful, and I'll tell you why. Because it is very important to realize that there are good desires and lawful desires, even intense and passionate desires that are not covetous, quote-unquote, or sinful at all. And this is important to remember because it is, it is as we cultivate godly desires and pursue them that we overcome and displace the ungodly desires. Okay? God has created us to have desires and to be filled with desires. And if our desire is not for Him, then it will be for the world. And so we must cultivate our desire for God. A.W. Pink said this about our initial desires in the garden and how they changed after the fall. This is what he says. Before the fall, the soul of man was drawn forth unto God as its supreme object and the end of all its exercise. But when man apostatized and turned from God as his only satisfying portion, his soul became enamored with the creature and with creation itself. Thus the soul of fallen man, being destitute of divine grace and spiritual life, craves sinful objects and inordinately lusts after things which in themselves are harmless, but become evil because he neither receives them as from God, nor uses them for his glory. Now, the predominant usage of our word hamad in the Old Testament is negative. It is used of desiring or delighting in or finding pleasant or coveting that which is not lawful or good for the person to have. Interestingly, both the first and second time this word is used in the Bible, it is in reference to the trees of the garden. That is, that they are pleasant. The first instance we read already that all of the trees were pleasant. But in the second, in the refer is the reference to Eve finding pleasant to the eyes the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 3, verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, that's our word covet, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. You see, Eve found the fruit of the tree pleasant to her, pleasing to her, desirable to her. She began to covet that which God had forbidden her to have. And here we see how the first motions of Adam and Eve's sin, especially Eve's, were rooted in the sin of covetousness. Now, 
Probably when you think about the sin of coveting, you most likely think of coveting in relation to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, in other words, lusting after another person, or the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, desiring to have the wealth, the money, the things that others have that are not yours. And I think that our inclinations, by and large, are correct. John Calvin mentions the same thing in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He, he uniquely ties covetousness to those two commandments and actually talks about how it can seem redundant at first to even have the Tenth Commandment when you have like commandments like the Seventh and an Eighth, which kind of include those desires in them. When it's already, it already seems to be implied in those other commandments. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But I do just want to confirm with you that we do often see our Hebrew word hamad, as well as the equivalent Greek New Testament word epithemio, being used largely in those contexts, more so in relation than to the other commandments. For example... After the incident in the garden, after the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus and then again in Deuteronomy, one of the first places we see Hamad being used in Deuteronomy is in Deuteronomy 7, where God gives the Israelites instructions about what they are to do when they enter the land of Canaan. And he warns them not to covet the idols that are made out of silver and gold. In Deuteronomy 7.25, God says to them, You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you can just imagine what a temptation that would be for these gods, these idols covered in silver and gold, and, and, and to want to have those and to covet them? I mean, I think about, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about that scene in that first Indiana Jones movie, where it's that, that little idol that he's trying to get, and it's made out of pure gold, right? And it's this, this relic, this artifact worth so much. And we uh, would be prone to covet idols made out of such precious metals, then the very next time the word is used is in a similar situation. The very next time the word is used is in relation to Achan, who coveted, right, that stuff after the fall of Jericho and buried it in the bottom of his tent. In Joshua 7, verse 21, Achan confesses his sin and he says, When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. There's our word, I coveted them and took them. Then, in relation to the seventh commandment, another place where we find our word being used is in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 25. In Proverbs chapter 6, let me begin at verse 23, and it says this, for the commandment is a lamp, and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life, to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart. There's our word. There's our word for covet, hamad. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot... 
A man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. And so we see this predominant usage of covenant of covet being used in the context a lot with regard to the seventh and eighth commandment. And then if we just look at the tenth commandment itself in its own context, we see that to be the case as well. Think again about what the verse verse 17 says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Okay? That is his property, his, you know, his land and the house that he dwells in, his, his estate. Right? You, you do not covet that. So a lot of times a person is marked by their house or their possessions or their land is that which is most valuable to them. You should not covet your neighbor's house. But then the very next one it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire another person's spouse, you see. And then it goes back to the lesser things that another person has or owns, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey. In our culture, in our day, we'd be more like lusting after that, you know, Camaro or Lamborghini Diablo or whatever it might be. You know, you want to have, uh, or you want to have your own helicopter or jet to fly around in. Uh, but, you know, we covet those things that our neighbor has. And then it says, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now, although we do see the words for covet and covetousness used quite often in reference to the 7th and 8th commandment violations, yet we think of coveting, we need to think of coveting as not being restricted only to these. Because the word means and really refers to any unlawful, ungodly, and inordinate desire in the heart. And desire that raises itself up against God, that is opposed to God, that comes in between us and God, or that is in competition with God. Any desire whatsoever that, is, that could be characterized in such a way. Whatever that desire is, here's an easy way to remember it. If it is contrary to the revealed will of God, or if it is contrary to God's will for your life, that is God's sovereign plan, then it is a violation of the Tenth Commandment. It is covetousness. When we desire something contrary to the revealed will of God, or contrary to God's will for us and our lives and His plan for us, any desire in the heart contrary to those things is covetousness. And we think about how often that happens. How often we want to change our situation. I mean, even when we're on our day-to-day activities and we get frustrated with things, we want things to be different. It's covetousness. It's covetousness, any desire, the contrary to God's will. And for the unbeliever especially, this is absolutely incessant because he never has a desire for God. As it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent, let me say that again, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is the nature of sinful man. 
That is the corrupt nature of man. It can only be evil continually, every intent, so that he is sinning constantly in his desires that are contrary to God. And this is especially why only the believer can even begin to keep the commandments of God. No unbeliever has for one second kept anything in regard to the Ten Commandments. But I want to take a moment to analyze sinful thoughts and desires a bit more, and I want to tease this out and flesh this out, because I don't think it's something that we really think about, even though other theologians have thought about this quite a bit. Because I do think that many theologians are right when they speak of the various stages of a covetous heart, and then they seek to support those stages biblically. And I think that for the most part, you, you can. There is first the bare thought itself that is contrary to the will of God. The thought that just crops up in your mind immediately. And it starts off very subtly at first. We think to ourselves initially, I would like to have this thing that I do not have at this moment. Or even, why does this person get to have this thing that I would like to have? that I would maybe do a better job with, or et cetera, et cetera, or something along those lines. Just that initial thought that creeps into our minds. Then there is the entertainment of that thought and a beginning to delight in that thought. The thought is not immediately extinguished or put out of the mind, but instead it is replayed in the mind and then elaborated upon further. It is meditated upon. And it becomes something like this. I am greatly upset that this is not mine and that I cannot have this thing. Or I am greatly upset about my condition or my situation. I greatly desire to have this thing. I would find it to be enjoyable or pleasurable for me to have it. Then there is a judgment in the mind contrary to God's judgment and an approbation of the inordinate desire that we have. We make a judgment in our minds that in this case, God is wrong and we are right. And we think, it would indeed be good for me to have this thing, which I do not have. It doesn't make sense that others get to have that which I do not have in this case. Why don't I get to have this money? It would be far better if I did, and I would use it better than that other person does. Why don't I get to have this person in my life? My situation would be greatly improved, yea, far better if such were the case. I am justified in thinking this way. I am justified in my desire for this thing. And then finally, there is the resolution of the will to act on this thought and to commit the sin when the opportunity presents itself. The person becomes resolved that if given the opportunity, they will have this thing even if it is gotten by unlawful means. And they will take matters into their own hands and change their situation even if it would be sinful to do so. And then if this fully developed sinful desire is acted upon, it then becomes a violation of one of the other commandments as well. 
But I trust you can see how these stages can develop in the heart and mind of a person. And I think that we see this reflected even to some degree in a a, a simple little passage like James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. I almost had this to our reading for this morning, but let me read a couple verses here from James chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Now listen, this is talking about sin in our own hearts and temptation that doesn't necessarily come from Satan himself or even necessarily from the world, but from ourselves. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Okay? God cannot tempt anybody to sin. Now, Actually, a little bit later in James, he talks about how God sends tests into our lives. God does test us. And it's a different word in Greek than the word here for tempt. But God does not tempt. Okay, God gave Adam and Eve a test in the garden, but he did not tempt Eve to eat the fruit. Okay. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires, that we have the initial desire, and enticed by them. It's getting increasingly stronger. Then when de- desire has conceived, we've, we've come up with a plan and a plot in a way to act upon this sinful desire that has enticed us. It gives birth to sin. And what James means in that context is open sin. You know, a public sin, a sin that comes out and is acted upon. Not necessarily in front of all the public, but it's an actual committed sin that if someone else were watching, they you know, could see. So you see, it, it goes to that point. When, sin, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to open sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. You see how we see a development even there in James chapter 1 of, of covetousness in the heart. But in all of these stages, even with the initial thought that enters the mind, it is sin. It is to be covetous. And here is where the Tenth Commandment is, is so vitally important. Because this command itself teaches us that sin begins as a matter of the heart. It teaches us that God demands not only outward obedience, but even always perfectly sinless desires in the heart. The slightest infraction, the the slightest thought in the mind, contrary to the will of God, is worthy of God's wrath and curse and everlasting punishment. I like how the Heidelberg Catechism answers the question, what is the aim of the Tenth Commandment? Answer, that not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and take pleasure in whatever is right. You see, the Tenth Commandment is a hedge against ever entertaining the idea that the law of God can be kept perfectly by us, even for a moment. The Tenth Commandment was, kept, was what kept tripping up the Apostle Paul when he was a Pharisee. He was trying to keep the law of God, and he thought that he was. He talks about it in Romans 7. But the Tenth Commandment kept coming back to him again and again as that commandment which he just would not and could not keep. And he says in Romans 7, verse 8, But sin, 
taking opportunity by the commandment, and he means the tenth in this context, produced in me all manner of evil desire. He says, the more I tried to keep the law according to the flesh, the more I seemed to break the law because I could not stop my evil, covetous desires. Though from a completely outward perspective, his life was really very impeccable and blameless to those around him who could view his life. Yet inwardly he was corrupt and didn't keep any of the commandments in his heart because he was covetous. And how many are there out there that actually think that they are keeping the commandments you know, of God like fairly well because they only think of them in terms of the external act and they do not consider the Tenth Commandment and its relation to the rest of them and how it undergirds all the rest of them. As A.W. Pink put it, it is here that God imposes a law upon our spirits. It is the bond which strengthens the whole law. And that's why the Tenth Commandment is given to us. Because it lets us know that all sin, all violations of the law, begin with covetousness. It is the last in order, but it's the first one that is always committed and uh, broken. You see, we know that lusting after another person is a violation of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery because of the tenth. We know that uh, desiring another person's possessions from the heart is a violation of the eighth commandment, stealing because of the tenth commandment. We know that hating a person in the heart is a violation of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, because of, precisely because of the tenth commandment. That's the role it plays, you see, even in the Old Testament. And this is where we see that Scripture, interpreting Scripture, is so vitally important and necessary. Listen to what Jesus said the role of covetousness plays in relation to the various sins of a person. In Matthew 15, verse 19, For out of the heart proceed... I want you to think about this verse carefully. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, then it says, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Do you see... Do you see how evil thoughts stands by itself? It starts there, and it starts in the heart. Everything else that's listed is the actual act of sin. But you see how the evil thought brings all of this forth into our lives. And in many ways, this whole idea of the Tenth Commandment or of covetousness being forbidden was a very radical idea in, in ancient law codes. One commentator said this, here, the Mosaic law takes a step enormously in advance of any other ancient code. Most codes stopped short at the deed. A few went on to words that you might say, not one attempted to control thoughts. You could look, for example, at, the, at Hammurabi's law code and all these things you weren't supposed to do. They're all outward acts, you see. Another commentator said, said this, This command was added in order to teach the general principle that the law of God is concerned not with acts and words only, but with the thoughts of the heart. Ancient moralists did not usually recognize this. The thoughts of a person, unless carried out into acts, were regarded as free. No responsibility was considered to attach to it. And consequently, no one felt it needful to control his thoughts or to regulate them. 
It was therefore of importance that the divine law should distinctly assert a control over men's thoughts and feelings, since they are the source of all that is evil in word and act. Therefore, congregation, knowing that every inordinate desire of the heart is in itself evil and sinful and the source of all evil, we should never be content with mere outward conformity to the law of God. But we must go to the root source and we must wage our fiercest warfare in our hearts, in our souls. Because once the heart is conquered by sin, then it will issue forth into deeds. We must wage war in the heart. Our greatest enemy is deep within us. We must stamp out the slightest spark of inordinate desire that arises within us. You know, just as you would stamp out a, a, a fire that's, that, you, that needs to stop. If there's sparks, it could turn into a flame. I remember one of my roommates in, a, in where I lived, uh, we were in a, in a condo, a condo, and um, he, for some reason, was burning something on fire in the room, in the living room. He just wanted to burn it up. But he didn't think about how the fact that it's probably not a good idea to burn something inside a house or a building. And so he lights it on fire. He's like, oh, no. And he, you know, he lets go. And then it lands on the carpet. It starts burning the carpet. And there, that burn is still there. And we're like stamping it out, right? I mean, it's crazy. But see, we will allow that flame, that spark of sin in our own hearts. And we won't stamp it out. Dreadfully dangerous to our souls. And we must realize that as believers, congregation, as believers, we are not slaves of our passions. Though at times it seems we are. Christ came to redeem us from the inside out. He came to clean the inside of the dish, right? We are not merely whitewashed tombs as Christ accused the Pharisees of being. We are washed and renewed from the inside One man by the name of Ellicott said this, We are not mere slaves to our natural desires and passions, but have controlling power implanted within us, by means of which we can keep down passion, check desire, and resist impulse. When regenerated, man is Lord of himself, capable by the exercise of his renewed will of molding his feelings of weakening or intensifying his passions, of shaping his character at the very core. What a wonderful gift you've been given, congregation. You can change your feelings. You can change your desires by the grace of God. He goes on, God who requires truth in the inward parts looks that we should in all cases go to the root of the matter and not be content with restraining ourselves from evil acts and evil words, but eradicate the evil feeling from which those acts and words proceed. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, that is, those lustful desires. And do not present your members as instruments of righteousness to sin, but present yourselves as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. See, then he goes to the outward acts, the members of our body being used for either good or evil. 
And then he says, for sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law. Law, this, that means the sinful nature as a law, a principle ruling over us. You are not under law, but you are under grace. Therefore, congregation, I want to encourage you to continue to fight the good fight of faith, even at the level of our own hearts. Don't give in to covetous desires. Overcome them by the grace of God. Now, obviously, you will never be perfect at this, but you can grow, and your desires can change. Don't succumb to desiring and lusting after the creation, but may your greatest desire be for your Creator. And I want to turn to a passage you want to with me in 1 John chapter 2 and read uh, how the Apostle John links covetousness to uh, the world. In 1 John chapter 2, in verses 15 through 17, listen to how the Apostle John talks about covetousness in the world. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, the desires for it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You see, a man, a man is covetous when he is, when he is taken up with the things of the world. When he loves the world, when he goes to the world for satisfaction. And I just want to warn you, congregation, be careful of your love for anything in the world. And you know, it's so dangerous in our day-to-day because like, you used to have to go out in the world to be among those in the world. But now the world comes into our own homes. It's in our hands on a cell phone. You can see horrible things that go on in the world. We've got to guard ourselves and be careful of loving the world wanting to be like the world, wanting the things in the world. Our desire must be for God himself. The world and covetousness go hand in hand together. Well, in conclusion, we're almost done. I want to offer two helps, two helps to fighting against and overcoming covetousness. Number one, number one, this may be surprising to you. Use all lawful means to improve your condition of life. I was amazed and struck by how many theologians and commentators brought this idea up. We often are covetous because we don't like what we have or we want something different or we want something more. Now, we can't always accomplish what we want to. We cannot always have the things that we would like. But there are some things that we can change and should change. We don't want to use covetousness as a cloak for apathy and complacency. Well, my condition is just like this, and I can't do anything about it, and this is how God wants me to be, and woe is me. Rather, you should use whatever means are at your disposal to better your situation and your station in life. Listen to what Charles Hodge said. A cheerful and contented disposition... In other words, somebody who's you know, not being covetous, a cheerful and contented disposition is perfectly compatible with a due appreciation 
of the good things of this world and diligence and the use of all proper means to improve our condition of life. If you're not happy with your job, maybe you can get a different one. You know, if, if you're not content with your station in life, you can change it. Uh, it. All of these kinds of things we can change about our lives. Now, again, we have to submit to God's sovereign will for us, and changing our situation can take time, and we must be content with our condition regardless. But at the same time, let us not be negligent to better our outward, our outward wealth and estate. Number two, and this one's more obvious, cultivate a spirit of thankfulness. Cultivate a spirit of thankfulness. There is no greater remedy for covetousness than thankfulness. Thankfulness and covetousness cannot abide one another's presence. Like sometimes our siblings just can't be in the same room together. Where one is present, the other will be absent. Practice the giving of thanks regularly. There should never be prayer without thanksgiving. And be thankful not only for what you have, and mention what you have in prayer, but for what others have and possess as well. And this is key. This is very key. And this is very, very hard. Listen to what J.G. Voss said about this. We should rejoice in all blessings, whether material or spiritual, enjoyed by others. We should rejoice in the blessings of others. We are to love our neighbor in such a way that we will be glad and thankful for his true welfare and prosperity as if it were our own. That's what the Tenth Commandment requires. If we are to truly love our neighbor, if we are really keeping the Tenth Commandment, we will be glad and thankful for the welfare and prosperity of our neighbor as if it were our own. Oh, how we fail to keep this commandment. But he goes on. Because our sinful heart, because of our sinful hearts, we sometimes take more satisfaction in the knowledge that our neighbor has committed some sin or suffered some loss than in thinking of the blessings that God has bestowed on him. Congregation, be thankful. Be thankful. Be thankful. No one should be more thankful than the believer. If you believe that God loves his children, in other words, you and me, more than we love our own, and that God is all-wise and all-powerful and does everything for our good, that he loves us more than we love our own children, then how can we gripe and complain against him? He does know what is best. And sometimes this can be so hard because we don't understand it. We really think that he doesn't know what's best in certain circumstances. And we've all been there. But he does know what is best. And what you've been given is more than sufficient. The Puritan Thomas Watson said this, He who has enough will not covet that which is another's. There is no better antidote against coveting that which is another's than being content with that which is our own. Believe that condition to be best, which God by providence carves out for you. If he had seen fit for us to have more, we should have it. And then he adds this. Perhaps we could not manage as great of an estate as we would have liked. 
It is hard to carry a full cup without spilling, and it's hard to have a full estate sometimes without sinning. God, in His love and in His wisdom, has allotted to you that which you should have. Let us learn to say with Jacob, when he brought that huge gift to Esau, do you remember Jacob was worried for his life? He's like, let's give him lots of stuff. He brought that huge gift to Esau, and he said, please take this. I have enough. I have enough. Congregation, whatever you have, it is enough. It is enough. You don't absolutely need something different. You don't absolutely need more. All you really need is what you have, and that's Christ. And with Him, let us say, I have Christ. If I, with, 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 uh, with Christ, let us delight ourselves. And let us say, if I have Christ, I have enough. He's all my heart's desire. And we think about Christ, and we might think to ourselves, yeah, but like, he had everything. He didn't even need to covet anything. But look at the condition he was willing to bring himself to on this earth. And look at what he gave up for us in dying on the cross for our sins. And the reason he gave that up was because his desire for us was great. Let me think of what Jesus said to his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed, in Luke 22, 22, 14 and 15, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to, this, to, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's incredible. That was what Christ's great desire was. And as we look and we examine ourselves this coming week and we look forward to partaking of the Lord's Supper together, may we put down those desires contrary to the will of God, contrary to our own selfish desires and comforts and longings, and may we desire to be with Christ, to be with God more than anything else. And when we desire that, we'll kill the desire against other, for other things. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you brought to us this morning. We're thankful, Lord, for the Ten Commandments. Lord, help us to love your law. Help it to be our meditation all the day. May we know it well. May we understand how to apply it to our lives. And in this particular case this week, we pray that you'd help us to examine our own hearts with regard to covetousness. And that you would help us, Lord, to grow in this area to, to put those covetous desires and thoughts out of our minds and to desire you more than anything else and to be thankful for all that you have done for us and all that you have given us. Bless us, we pray, in this. Keep us by your grace. Strengthen us. Help us to keep your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.